It feels like forever since I've been here on Wednesday. Hebrews chapter 3, I do happen to know that we left off at verse 6, so we begin in verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and I'm entitling this particular portion of scripture, The Dangers of a Hard Heart. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who having heard rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, With whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Remember what we've learned so far in chapter 1, in chapter 2, chapter 3. The book of Hebrews claims that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Better than the angels, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Better than Moses, chapter 3. And then all of chapter 4, all the way to, to verse 13. He's trying to convince you that religion and ritual and even facts and information will never, never, ever provide for you what Jesus can provide for you. And so he's encouraging them to not give up on Jesus or the hope of the gospel. And so what happens to people who miss out on Jesus, who miss out on the gospel, who miss out on hope? These people miss God's rest. And so we're ready to obey Jesus. And obey him supremely. We must believe the promise of salvation. We're supposed to believe that forgiveness of sin is something that's a part of our life. And the hope of our future. And we can't harden our hearts in verses 7 through 11. We have to be ever vigilant of the dangers that confront us about unbelief in verse 12. And we have to encourage and exhort one another. Read what the text says. Daily. 
We need to have an opportunity and an outlet where we can love each other daily, pray for one another daily, encourage one another daily. And so he says, look, do not harden your heart. Look again in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Holy Spirit is speaking. And by the way, the word says isn't in the past tense. It isn't even in the future tense. It isn't the Holy Spirit has spoken times past or the Holy Spirit will speak in times future. It's speaking about the here and the now. The Lord will use his word and he will use the power of the Holy Spirit to make real his word to speak to you today. He's speaking to you today if you'll hear his voice. So the writer of Hebrews has already told us that God has spoken in the past through the prophets. He continues to speak to us in the present by his son and by the word. And so look at what the Holy Spirit has to say. Do not harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness. The old King James translates this. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. It's actually quoting Psalm chapter 95, verse 8, where it says, Harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. And those two words translate two Hebrew words, Massah and Meribah. These are words that's used in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, and Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. The Hebrews, the Jewish people writing this, would have been keenly aware of what is being spoken of. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. The wanderings in the wilderness of the children of Israel revealed the true condition of their hearts. You know the story, how the children of Israel increase in numbers in Egypt, how God raises up Moses, how God tells Moses, I want you to take my people out of here. And of course, he obeys the Lord and he takes them out of of there. But remember, from the place where they were to the place where they needed to be in Canaan, it was only an 11-day journey. But they stopped. Short. You all know the story how 12 spies went into the land. And 10 of them came back with a report that said, you know, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's all kinds of wonderful things here. But there's also giants here. Oh, by the way, there are people who live here and they don't want to leave. And they're really big. And we're really small, and we think we should probably go back home. And Joshua and Caleb said, you know what? They're going to be like cupcakes on a platter. Yes, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, they are giants, but guess what? God, the Lord God who delivered us from Egypt, will deliver them into our hands. And they decided not to believe them. And you know the story. They 
were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because they didn't really trust the Lord. And they didn't really believe their leaders. And they began regretting that they ever left Egypt to begin with. And that becomes, in a sense, what it means to harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. What, in fact, is he saying? Do not harden your heart when the Lord has spoken to you. Do not harden your heart when men and women tell you that the Bible is true and that the promises of God are true and that they can be trusted. And so he uses the wilderness wanderings of the Jewish people as an example of what not to do. And he draws on the nation of Israel as the illustration for the journey of the Christian. The Jews were in bondage to Egypt. We were in bondage to sin and and this world. The Lord God redeems Israel by the blood of the Lamb at Passover. Christ is is our redemption. God the Father redeems us through the sacrifice of Jesus the Son on the death, his death on the cross. God promised the Jews a land of blessing. They were offered a, a physical inheritance and we're offered a spiritual inheritance. We don't occupy a land, we occupy Christ, we occupy Jesus, we occupy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to the end of the book in Revelation, because when you occupy Jesus, you occupy the past, the present, and the future, and you occupy everything that matters. So the blessing could only come to those who left Egypt and followed the Lord by faith into the promised land. And so God took them through the Red Sea. That was a separation from the world. Just like the Lord took you out of this world. He called you to live a life of separation from the world and dedication to him. The Lord didn't ask you to leave fun. The Lord asked you to leave sin. The Lord didn't ask you simply to leave sin, but to embrace the Savior. And this led them to the border of Canaan. And Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2, like I said, tells us the journey took 11 days, 11 days, 11 days. But at this point, Israel rebelled and in bitter unbelief refused to believe God according to Numbers chapter 14. And again, you remember the story. You remember the story how how Joshua and Caleb um, gave them the good report and God heard the protest and God heard the complaining and God heard the griping and the fear and the Lord said that he was going to judge the entire congregation. And for every single day that the 12 spies spent in the land checking it out, they were going to be forced to wander in the wilderness for a year. 40 years And the nation didn't enter into the promised rest. According to Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 9. According to Joshua chapter 1 verses 13 and 15. The only people who did was Joshua and Caleb. 
Because they always believed the promises of God. They always hoped in the word of God. Now again, all Jews were familiar with the story. And the person who's received Christ is redeemed by the blood, set free from the world. But he's using this illustration because he knew that these Hebrew Christians, just like their ancestors of old, were tempted to go back to that other life. And as as some of you know, some Christians are tempted to go back to the other life. Hey, remember the other life? Remember the other life? Remember the other life before we experienced God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's hope? I'm hoping that that when you're thinking about that life, it isn't fond memories. I'm hoping you're not remembering all the times you got drunk or all the times you got high or all of the times that you were so-called partying with your friends, but you're remembering those times of loneliness and emptiness and fear as you wondered about what this world really meant and whether or not there really was such a place as heaven and whether or not you were going to go there. A refusal to enter the land was a refusal to enter into blessing and favor and rest. And so what he's reminding the Hebrew children is that for those who want to go back to Judaism, who want to go back to religion, who want to go back to ritual, who want to go back to something other than grace and mercy and love are getting shortchanged. And in verse 9, look what it says, where your fathers tested me tried me and saw my works 40 years. The people of Israel tested parodzimai, tried dokimadzo. You may not understand what those two words mean. Let me help you with them. The word tested and tried means they put the Lord to the test. In other words, as they leave Egypt and they are getting ready to enter into the land, they're going, I wonder if God really is God. I wonder if he really is who he says he is. I wonder if he can really do what he says he can do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the Lord to the test and see if he meets with my approval. And they prayed a certain kind of a prayer. Okay, God, what kind of a God are you? What can you do for me? And remember what they forgot? here's what I did. I heard your crying and your weeping and your agonizing tears when you're making bricks out of straw, when you're building Pharaoh's buildings and you're living a life of enslavement and isolation and humiliation. Just like some of you, when you prayed and you go, Lord, I don't want to live a life of addiction to drugs and I don't want to live a life of enslavement to sin and I don't want to live a life of fear and I don't want to live a life of that's separated from you. So I'm going to put you to the test. If God proves faithful, if he proves worthy, then I'll be loyal to him and I obey, I'll obey him. Okay, so the Lord speaks to you. What is it that you want me to do? I never want to experience pain, sorrow, or suffering ever. See, you're laughing. How is God going to answer a prayer like that? Sometimes pain, suffering, and sorrow is exactly what you need in order to build your character, in order to grow you from immaturity to maturity. 
No, Lord, I mean, I want to be a Christian, but I want it to be a pain-free Christianity. I want it to be a painless Christianity. I, I want it to be the kind of Christianity where I never, ever, ever have to trust you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity isn't just a system of religious thinking or a set of rules and regulations. It's a real relationship with the real Lord. And isn't it interesting? They wanted God to prove himself, but they were unwilling to prove themselves to show that they really believed in God and they really trusted God. So few people go, Lord, I really do love you and I really do trust you and I really do believe you. And I'm willing to let you, I'm willing to prove it to you, Lord. Oh, really? How? Well, go ahead and try me. Go ahead and just remove your, the feeling of your presence. I don't want your presence to go away. Just remove the feeling of your presence or, or remove my job or, or have me experience a difficulty. And then I'm still going to love you and trust you and believe in you. Most people don't pray that kind of a prayer because they don't want that kind of relationship. And in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, the children of Israel were thirsty and the Lord met their need. In chapter 17, the congregation were thirsty again and the people, they had forgotten God's mercy and they cried out and they started to complain and they started to murmur and they go, we're dying here. We're dying, Moses. We're dying. And the people criticized Moses. And then they murmured against the Lord. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, it was a very great sin. And they tested the Lord. And they tried the Lord, suggesting, suggesting that the, that the Lord didn't really care about them. He wasn't really willing to help him. And they were trying God's patience by willful, repeated complaints and sometimes we feel exactly the same way for those of you who are parents and you've ever had a child say to you oh come on come on come on come on and and you you go look just to keep you from nagging me i'm gonna say yes now thank god god isn't like you and i God can't be nagged to death. The Lord in heaven just doesn't go, I've had it with you. Okay, okay, I, I give up. The truth is that if you nag and complain and you insist on rebellion and disobedience and you insist on rebellion and disobedience, is it possible that the Lord not because he hates you, but because he loves you, is going to let you have what you think you need. And you discover something. It's something that isn't good for you, and it isn't God's best for you. Moses did what we all should do at the beginning. 
He cries out to God. He begs for God's guidance. And he says, Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do with these people? Lord, speak to me, guide me, help me speak to their circumstances. Lord, help me, help them. And the Lord said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the rod that you have in your hand and I want you to speak to the rock in chapter 15 or smite the rock and water will flow. And we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that the rock is Christ and the smiting of the rock speaks of Jesus' death on the cross where Jesus experiences the rod of the curse of the law. By the way, this is the same rod that turned into a serpent. This is the same rod that brought the plagues of Egypt. And so in type and in picture... The Lord is trying to create a type and a picture where the Lord himself is going to bear that curse and he's going to bear that sin. And then in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, there's a second experience with with the rock. And then God says, okay, this time, this time, Moses, I don't want you to smite the rock. I want you to speak to the rock. Because guess what? Jesus doesn't die twice, and he doesn't die three times, and he doesn't die over and over again. Jesus will die once. He will die once. He will die once. He will be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And so, because Moses is angry with the people, instead of speaking to the rock... He smites the rock again. And because of that sin, Moses is not permitted to enter into Canaan. And some of you might be thinking, that just seems like such a small thing. It seems like such not a big deal at all. I mean, think about it. You mean he's getting that kind of punishment just because he smote the rock? But but guess what? He spoils the type. And he misrepresents the reality of who God is and what God wants and what he requires. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. God isn't looking for a reason to punish you. He's looking for reasons to forgive you and encourage you and remind you that Jesus came for you. And so when he says the speak to the rock he's in in fact giving a a different type of of an illustration and the different type of the illustration is if you will speak to the lord if you will speak to the spirit of god when you're born again you are born again with the presence of jesus and the spirit comes and the spirit lives inside of you but because we walk in a filthy world and because we walk in a broken world and because we walk in a sinful world we have to be filled with the holy spirit over and over and over again this is why the bible says don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess but rather keep on keeping on being filled with the spirit and so it's okay for you to ask the lord and say lord i need a fresh experience of your presence and your love and being able to speak to you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the whole point is that, that by asking God to fill you, not by asking Jesus to die over and over and over again, but by asking God to fill you, God is willing to do that. That the Lord would give them what they needed, guidance and protection. But the people continued to harden their heart by refusing to listen to God's voice, 
by refusing to trust the promises of the people that God entrusted with those promises to speak to those people and tell them the truth. The people continue to harden their hearts against God. And in verse 10, look what it says. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Why was the Lord angry? They provoked him in verse 8. They tried him in verse 9. The Lord promised to meet their needs, and then he did meet their needs, not their greeds. Did they live a life of luxury in the wilderness? No. But they had all of life's necessities. There was always a place to stay, there was always a cloud and a cover fire and there was always food and there was always water and there was always provision they had God's care and they had God's provision and they had God's guidance and they had God's promise I'm going to get you there I'm going to take you there I'm going to take you to the place where you need to be. I'm going to take you to the place where there's rest. But they always went astray. They refused to believe God. And it was not one year of disobedience. It wasn't even two years of disobedience and no trust. It wasn't 10 years of disobedience and trust. It wasn't 20 years of disobedience and trust. It wasn't 30 years of disobedience and trust. It was 40 years of disobedience and not trusting God. Imagine you're in a relationship with a man or a woman and... There's disobedience and no trust. Disobedience and no trust for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. If you're at 39 years where there's no trust and there's disobedience, ladies, gentlemen, are you going to go, I'm thinking that this person's probably not going to change. They refuse to believe God. In God's way. And by the way, what is God's way? It's the way of faith. It's the way of trust. It's the way of obedience instead of flinching and fudging in trial. We're invited. We're invited to draw close. Remember what the New Testament says? Draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Remember what the New Testament says? Learn to fellowship with God. Learn to trust the Lord. Learn to depend upon the Lord. Learn to walk with the Lord. And so again, when we're coming together like this and we're doing what we're doing, there's this constant invitation. Draw close to the Lord. Learn to fellowship with the Lord. Learn to trust the Lord. Learn to depend on the Lord. Learn to walk in the Lord. But in verse 11, it says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And I need to pause for just a moment because we need to talk about rest just for a moment. The word is rest. The word rest is so important in our understanding, not only of this passage, but of the entire book of Hebrews. When we get to the fourth chapter, the writer of Hebrews is going to use the word rest 12 times 
But it doesn't always have the same meaning. And that sometimes creates some confusion for some people. Again, Warren Wiersbe points out there's three different rests in chapter 3 and chapter 4. These three different rests point to God's plan and to God's provision. There's the rest of salvation in chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 10. There's the rest of victory while you are in the midst of trial and tribulation in verse 11 of chapter 4. There's the rest that in eternity future, we, we might think of this as the heavenly rest or the eternal rest. Or when you have a loved one die and you hear people say, I hope they rest in peace. You know the rest. It's a kind of an eternal rest. And we're going to study those more in chapter 4. But the exhortation here for the people of God is to trust the Lord like Joshua and Caleb. To trust the promises of God. To trust the rest. But here, Canaan isn't a picture of heaven. It's a symbol of the occupation of the life of battle and blessing, of progress and victory. Remember, they're going to enter the land. They're going to have to displace the people in the land. And they're going to have to occupy the land. But again, it becomes a type and a picture of your Christian life. Because guess what? When you came to Christ, when you decided to follow Jesus, there was stuff inside of you that didn't want to go away. And Jesus went into your mind and into your heart and into your circumstances and sometimes into your emotion and sometimes into your failures. And the Lord said, "Ah, this anger and bitterness stuff has to go. This wickedness and stupidity, we're kind of done with that. This needs to go and this needs to go and this needs to go and this needs to go. And then pretty soon you realize that there's not a whole lot left. And that's a good thing because guess what? Jesus wants to occupy your thinking and your feeling and your past and your present and your future. He wants to be with you. And so remember Canaan, not a picture of heaven, symbol of battle and blessing, symbol of progress and victory, and your walk in Christ will have battles and blessings, progress and victory. You don't have to admit it to me. You don't even have to raise your hand. Have some of you had some setbacks? Some setbacks? No, I don't need hands. I just need you in your mind to be thinking, yeah, I've experienced some setbacks. But even as you've experience the setbacks the Lord reminds you but remember what our agreement I love you I'll forgive you I'll walk with you remember I'm delivering you from the penalty of sin I'm at work delivering you from the power of sin at some point in the not too distant future I'm going to deliver you from the presence of sin And we walk in Jesus. 
And we yield to him and we walk with him and we trust him and we allow him to fight our battles and we allow him to to have our victories. We have a present rest. We rest now. We are Christians. Our rest doesn't begin when we die and we go to heaven. Your rest begins the moment you prayed the prayer and you said, Jesus, Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you live in my heart? Will you walk with me? And guess what? At that point, you had peace with God and you had rest. What kind of a rest? The rest in the knowledge that your sins were forgiven and that heaven is going to be your home. It's a present rest in Christ, even in trial. It's a rest in trial. It's a a rest in testing. Lord, I need a job. I know you do, and I'll get you a job, but I need you to rest and trust in me. Lord, I need this. I I know you do. I I want you to rest and trust in me. I, I need that. I know you do. I want you to rest and trust in me. We have a present rest. And this is the kind of rest. And this becomes part of the point of this passage. This is the kind of rest that Moses could never give. And this is why Jesus is better than angels. And better than prophets. And better, not just simply in the law and obedience to the law or being, being uh, identified or, or somehow found right according to the law, but Moses, 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 Moses. I know it sounds like the Ten Commandments, huh? Remember the old Brenner when he goes, Moses, the day that I see your face is the day that you shall surely die. Back to the text. In verse 12, he says, beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Do you remember in chapter 2? The writer of Hebrews encouraged the listeners, don't drift from the word of God in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Remember your Bible. Remember the promises. Don't drift from the word of God. In chapter 3, verse 7, don't doubt the word of God. Don't drift from the word of God. Don't doubt the word of God. Because the heart of unbelief abandons the word of God and departs from the living God. And this is exactly what Israel did Beware, brethren. Note, he's not saying people who aren't believers or or people who haven't heard the gospel. He literally calls them brethren. And yet they fail to believe God. They fail to trust God. They failed to believe the promises of God. They failed to believe in his compassion, in his care, in his provision. To give them the land and experience the rest. And so he's warning us to not depart from the living God. It's hard to ask this question, but I think we need to do it. Do I have an evil heart? Of unbelief. It's not something that I can answer for you. It's something that only you can answer. 
Where do you stand with the Lord? Where are you with Christ right now? Are you aloof? Are you distant? Are you in rebellion? Do you believe him and love him and trust him? Are you walking wisely in the house of God? Would you characterize your walk as a walk of love like it says in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 2? Are you walking carefully like it says in Ephesians 5 15 where it says walk circumspectly which means carefully with, with an attention to detail. Are you walking in truth? Are you walking in dependence on the Lord? Are you walking submissively to the Lord like it says in Colossians 2 6? We're to walk in love the Bible says. We're to walk in the spirit, the Bible says. We're to walk in the truth and we're to walk in the newness of life and we're to walk worthy of the Lord. And you are. Or you're not. And the evil heart of unbelief is described as an evil heart because... Unbelief feeds sin, and sin feeds unbelief. And so look what he, dis, he encourages us to do. If we stop there, we might, we might be bummed out, but, but the writer says, decide to encourage each other daily. Look what it says in verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The word exhort is the same word that is used to describe. It's one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called parakaleo, the one who comes alongside to comfort. It's called the paraclete. Here, the word exhort means to beg or entreat or to plead. And so the begging or the pleading or, or the entreating is, is something way more than just a guy begging on the side of the road. It's that kind of tender, repetitive message that's intended to provide comfort. The re, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. The word exhort is filled with comfort. Let me see if I can paint a picture. The, the, the picture is of a person who's been walking down the road of life and they've fallen down and they've stumbled. Another picture is you're driving in that hot desert between whatever that passes right when you get to New Mexico and Santa Fe. And there's this long stretch of nothing. Or the stretch of desert between Barstow and Las Vegas where there's a big long stretch of nothing and your car is broken down and it's overheated and you're a million miles from everywhere and somebody pulls over and they pull next to you and they say, can I help you? And it just so happens that on the side of their truck, it says, Jesus tow truck. And you go, tell me who you are? It's the Jesus tow truck. Well, what do you do? We find people who are in trouble and we help them. And what exactly do you do? Well, you know, if your radiator is broken, we fix it. If you need water, we give you water. If you need this, we give you that. We, we help you get to where you need to be. 
That's, that's this word. But exhort one another daily. Pick each other up. Minister to one another. Offer aid and assistance. And the word comfort is actually substantive. You know, you might think of comfort as being like a cloud or like a pillow. And in many ways, comfort is like a cloud and a a pillow. Comfort is light and it is heavy. When the Lord speaks, we can trust his words. When the Lord tells the children of Israel, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not fall upon you in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. When he says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over you. You're going to be safe. You're going to be safe. And that was supposed to provide words of comfort. You mean I'm not going to be judged? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You mean all of the horrible judgment that's going to take place for the people who don't know you and love you? It's not going to happen to me? That's exactly right. That's words of encouragement. We encourage one another. How? Because we've separated from sin. Because we trust the Father's care. Because we look to the Lord for security and stability and preservation and protection. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to say to each other. The Lord loves you. The Lord's looking out for you. He'll protect you. He'll be with you. He'll comfort you. And so we want to guard. Look what it says. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have to guard against a hard heart of unbelief. And the writer gives several reasons. Let's let's look at a few. In verses 14, he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now... With whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they couldn't enter in because of unbelief. Here's the reasons. Very quickly. Number one. He says, the reason why you shouldn't do this? The clock is ticking. Time is short. You might be thinking, I have all the time in the world. By the way, some of you have more time than others. But I wish I could say to you that each and every one of you are promised tomorrow. But then I would be lying to you. Because none of you are promised tomorrow. Could things radically change even tonight for some of us? It could. So here's what he says. He gives a sense of urgency. He says, encourage and exhort each other today. And this becomes one of the most important reasons to invest in each other's life, to minister to one another, to form friendships and relationships. I love it when you show up for church. But it's not good enough that you show up for church just to listen to me you have to show up for each other you have to show up for each other to encourage one another 
And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, see then that you walk circumspectly. That means with an intention to detail, carefully, diligently, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So the writer of Hebrews says, the time is short. If ever there was a day to be right with God, it's today. Tomorrow might be too late. Things happen. We're flowers quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. You know the song, a wave in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. And number two, because hearts are getting harder. Why are hearts getting harder? He says, because sin is deceitful. How is sin deceitful? You know how it's deceitful. It looks good. It tastes good. It offers pleasure for a moment. But then it enslaves us. It's like that dark, wonderful, rich chocolate. It looks so good. It tastes so good. It offers pleasure for a moment. And then I want more, and I want more, and I want more. And the temporary numbness gives way to more profound emptiness. Sin leaves the heart empty. But think about it for just a moment. What, is the sin, what does sin promise? I'll fill your heart. What does sin promise? I'll make you happy. What does sin promise? I'll make your marriage better. I'll get you a better job. You know what sin says? If you will lie, cheat, and steal, guess what? You could make more money than you ever made in your life. But by the way, sin promises all of those things, but does it deliver any of those things? It delivers emptiness and loneliness and hurt and brokenness. It divides families. Sin destroys fellowship. And the more sin, the more scars. And sin begets sin and it nourishes sin. And the more a person sins, the easier it is to continue in sin. And guess what happens? Sin prepares the heart for the next sin and the next sin. And the next sin. And in Psalm 95, 8, it says, Harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. And number three, salvation is conditional. In what way? Salvation is conditional in this sense. We're not saved by simply wishing we were saved. Can you imagine just laying on your bed and go, You know, I wish I was saved. I wish my sins were forgiven. And, and I wish I could go to heaven. Is it wrong to want your sins forgiven? No. Is it wrong to want to go to heaven? No. But imagine you're going, I want, to, I, want to, I want my sins forgiven and I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to trust Jesus and I don't want to love Jesus and I don't want to serve Jesus and I don't want to, by faith, trust him. Well, what do you want to do? I want my sins forgiven and I want to go to heaven and I want to still live like hell. Can you imagine the Lord going, well, okay, I'll give it some thought. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord says, I am so willing to forgive you. And I am so willing to give you the promise of eternal life. I just want you to turn from your sin and I want you to trust me. We are partakers of Christ. That's what the text says. 
We're partakers of Christ, not partakers of Calvary, not partakers of evangelical theology, not partakers of conservative political positions. Is it, by the way, is it wrong to have conservative political positions? No, it just won't save you. Is it wrong to have theological distinctives? Of course not. But it's not theological distinctives that save you. We're partakers of Christ. We hold fast to him. If you're holding fast to Jesus, you're holding on. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It doesn't say, go to church, read your Bible, although I want you to go to church and I want you to read your Bible. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what it means to be saved. You're saved because you have a right relationship with God and and Christ. And the the fourth reason, each day is important. We hear today, verse 7. We hear today, verse 15. We don't allow sin to plug our ears or blind our eyes. And number five, some did provoke God. They lived in rebellion. They lived in disobedience. They, They lived not believing. They lived not trusting. And so imagine when 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 people say, I want to live in rebellion. I want to live not believing. I want to live not trusting. So you want to provoke God. That's what you want to do. Well, yeah. And my statement is, well, good luck with that. Because God's already gone on record. Bad idea to provoke the Lord. Because number six, judgment is certain. God has issued his judgment. Those who believe and trust and obey the Lord. Hope, grace, mercy, love, salvation. Those who do not believe and trust and obey the Lord. That's a different road. It's a road apart from the gospel. Apart from grace. Apart from Christ. Number seven, God will judge unbelief. Look at the, the words, believed not. They believed not, refuse. That means they refuse to be persuaded. They refuse to believe. They withhold belief. This is the person who says, I won't believe. I won't believe. I can't believe. I won't believe. What do you need? I need more evidence, okay? Um, empty tomb, more evidence. Uh, testimony of angels, more evidence. Um, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, uh, more evidence. Uh, The preservation of the Bible, more evidence, more evidence, more evidence. And it doesn't matter how much evidence you pile on them because evidence really isn't what they're looking for. They want an excuse to continue in their sin. And by the way, for the person who wants to continue in in their sin, how much evidence do they need to stop sinning? It doesn't matter. No amount of evidence will get them to stop because that's what they want to do. And number eight, unbelief isolates, it alienates, it leaves a person outside instead of inside, and nothing, nothing, nothing will close the door quicker than unbelief. Because unbelief keeps a person from experiencing God's rest. Someone has said, unbelief is not the cause of sin, sin is the cause of unbelief. If that's true, 
If that's true, then unbelief feeds sin. And then sin feeds unbelief. A.W. Pink wrote, quote, None but the Lord himself can afford us any help from the awful workings of unbelief, doubting and carnal fears and murmurings. Thank God one day we will be forever done with unbelief. And one day, one day, the doubt and the unbelief will be fully resolved. So how do we avoid a hard heart? Again, the, the, it's so simple, it's, I feel like I should have just preached the conclusion. When we hear God's message, we heed God's message. That's the message of Hebrews right here. Hear it, heed it. How do we avoid a hard heart? This is the surprise. You find a way to encourage each other daily. You pray for one another daily. You love each other daily. You ask each other daily. Is there something I can pray for you? Is there some promise that I can remind you of to encourage you? You know, someone once suggested that Noah and his sons may have enlisted other carpenters or people to help build the ark. I was intrigued by that. Listen to this. Many hundred years ago, they ventured to remark that Noah had some carpenters to help him build the ark. But sad to say, on that last day, when Noah entered in, Those carpenters were left outside and perished in their sin. How sad to think they may have helped to build the ark so great. Yet still they heeded not God's word and awful was their fate. Today the same sad fate exists among the sons of men. They helped to build the so-called church who are not born again. They stay behind for sacrament. They work. They sing, they pray, yet never have accepted Christ, the life, the truth, the way. Another judgment will come. Another judgment day will come as sure as came the flood. And only those will be secure who shelter neath Christ's blood. The Lord sees the sacrifice of Jesus In your heart and says, you are safe. Prophets can't do that. Angels can't do that. Moses can't do that. Now we're going to do it again. You guys just come. You don't have to, you can just sort of crowd like right into this middle aisle. And I want you to just take a moment. We're going to close our service. I'm going to pray for you for just a moment. But before I dismiss you, again, I want you to, we're going to do something a little bit different. Again, now I want you to do it again. I want you to find a different person this time and say, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you in this 
the walk that we have together in Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for wisdom and love and encouragement. Lord, I pray that you would shower the gift of your Holy Spirit on each and every person. Lord, I pray that you would stir up their gifts. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged and that they would encourage one another. Lord, I pray that they would refuse a hard heart of unbelief. That, Lord, that they would believe your promises that they would experience your love. That they would remind themselves of your care, your concern, and your commitment. And that they would believe it, believe it, believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.